Welcome to the Positive Impact Podcast, where we dive into the world of movers, shakers, and changemakers, creating a positive impact on the world. This is your host, Alexandra Black Pollock, and together we're going to tackle real issues, discovering how we can make the world a better place. This episode of the Positive Impact Podcast is brought to you by HelloFresh, delicious, healthy, and fresh meals delivered straight to your door. Enjoy cooking again with scrumptious and easy to prepare meals three nights a week. Visit positiveimpactpodcast.com slash fresh for $40 off your first box. I've got an incredible guest in store today. Sarah Shire, true mover and shaker, is the founder and visionary behind Compassionate. Compassionate is a global movement inspiring compassionate actions and attitudes. We believe that when you're compassionate in your daily life, you can positively impact the entire world. This movement brings empathy into our daily lives, making us better equipped to create meaningful change. Yesterday, compassion was a verb. Today, it's an action. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hi. Thank you for having me, Alex. I appreciate it. So this idea of compassion, why did that resonate with you and why are you building a movement around compassion? Well, it all came, this, the whole idea for Compassionate came from an Ellen episode that I saw in 2008. Inspiration <laughs> can come from anywhere. Yeah, and she was interviewing Wayne Dyer, who recently passed away. He's an author and speaker. And he was talking about compassion, and he said, compassion is the most important lesson to teach our children. He said, if we could teach our kids to put themselves in another's shoes and help them, uh, we would solve every social problem on the planet. No more hunger, no more poverty, no more war because of compassion. And I had never really thought about how powerful compassion was before, and I couldn't stop thinking about it. And that evening, the word compassionate in my mind became two words, compassion it. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's so cool. It's like, just do it. It makes compassion a verb. And of course, I Googled it, which is another example of a noun made into a verb. And, <laughs> uh, and it didn't exist anywhere. So initially, I thought this should be a bumper sticker. And that's really all I was thinking. And it took me a few years to have the courage to get it going. Um, and now it's become this global social movement creating compassionate actions. And it all came from this idea that compassion is the most important lesson that our children should learn. That's some pretty impressive marching orders. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> to really change everyone's mind and embrace a compassionate just nature to move forward in how and they dress everyone. Boundaries won't as matter as much. People are going to be more accepting of other cultures, of other ideas, just how they treat others. You've got a lot on your plate. Yeah, it's pretty. It's a pretty big concept, that's for sure. So let's touch into that. What is the big vision for this, or what kind of impact are you hoping to reach? That's a. It's a tricky question because, of course, what I would hope for is that everyone in the world would embrace the simple idea of living their lives compassionately. And that's a pretty big vision, so I know it may not be attainable. And I think something we're supposed to do as entrepreneurs is set attainable goals. So I'm not sure. I really think that what I would hope is that we can have compassion education programs in more schools 
And uh, we're also doing work in hospitals and in corporations as well to spread compassion. And I, I think that these are programs that are needed everywhere. So I th- I'm not really sure if I have a set vision just yet. We're just trying to get this message to as many people as we can. We initially had said we wanted to see a million acts of compassion happening each day around the world. And we would know that that was happening by a million bracelets being out in the world. But I think that that's not quite a big enough vision for us. I love that. (laughs) Thank you. You're going, go big or go home. (laughs) Exactly. So let's break this down. You have this big overarching goal of compassion all throughout the world, millions of people, yet, and you introduce this concept of a bracelet, you're really breaking it down and making it tangible. So as your audience member, as somebody working to incorporate compassion, I don't have to struggle with this big overarching theme and I'm going to spread compassion throughout the entire world. You broke it down and made it easy for users. Can you touch on how you did that? Yeah, that's. thank you for asking that. We have a unique product that doesn't look unique when you first see it, but it's it's a cause wristband, kind of like the Livestrong bands. So, But instead of just sitting there on your wrist showing people that you support a cause, like most, most of the bands do that, ours creates action. You put the wristband on in the morning, setting your intention to do something compassionate that day. And then when you do, you flip it over. So it's black on one side and white on the other, and you flip it to the other side when you compassion it that day. So it challenges you each day to do at least one thing compassionate. And I tell my audiences, if at the end of the day you come home and you look down and you have not flipped your wristband, the idea is that you don't beat yourself up about it. You say, gosh, I'm human. I had a really busy day. I had to focus on work or what have you. And by doing that, you are offering yourself self-compassion. And then you can flip your wristband. So there should never be a day that goes by that you don't get to flip the wristband. How rewarding. Because it is important to be graceful in yourself. Especially in today's world, with you can go so many different directions, and there's high stress, and we're always hooked up to our technology. You can beat yourself up around a million things easily. And especially you add other stresses. I know you're a mom. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine the challenges that that brings to your daily life. Yeah, I think mo- most of us beat ourselves up, and that's we're not taught to be compassionate toward ourselves. So this is a we also do actually have a self-compassionate version of the wristband to help people focus on that alone. But this is a something that we're not taught. And thinking about how how I used to speak to myself, and when I started paying attention to that. I realized if I spoke to my friends the way that I speak to myself, I would not have any friends. So once I paid attention to that voice inside of me, I, I changed it. And instead of beating myself up if I didn't do things perfectly or well, I would offer myself encouragement and mentorship. How has that impacted your life? Gosh, I think I just seem a lot happier now. I don't need to beat myself up. I should be my my number one fan. So um, it, things just seem to go more slu- smoothly. I seem more resilient now and I guess more even keeled. I, I'm not devastated if things don't go well. Great. 
So let's go back to these ideas of implementing compassion into your daily life. Yeah. Can you describe what some of those actions might be? Things that you might suggest to get people going, to get started? Yeah, I think that I appreciate that question too. People often think they have to do something huge to be able to flip their wristband and they're always, it seems like people are worried. Oh, I didn't, I didn't do anything fantastic enough today to flip my wristband. And I really just want to challenge people to open their eyes and notice, notice what's going on around them. So maybe just smiling at someone today that you don't know, that could be something compassionate that you did to flip your wristband. Or perhaps you listened to a friend. That I think is one of the best forms of compassion we can offer. So it can be these very small actions that you can do to flip your wristband. And then if you want to challenge yourself to do something more, you can. Even just the idea of being present. Yeah. You always see this meme going around on Facebook where everyone, you have to put your cell phones in the middle so that people actually talk to each other. So something as simple as being present and being there for somebody and being a good friend, a good listener, those actions can have such an impact in somebody else's life. And yeah. they feel more worthwhile. You feel more connected. Yeah. Mindfulness is a big part of compassion. And it's something that we teach in the classes that we lead. Because if you are not aware of what's happening around you, you can't offer compassion. So we need to learn how to put our phones away and open our eyes and be present in, in the moment. What a great way to have a local impact too. Yeah. Because <laughs> you you're can't, right. You can't get more local than starting off with yourself. And then moving to the person right next to you. And on that idea of self, let's discuss this self bracelet that you have. Okay. And why you saw the need to create that. So it says self-compassionate on it. And it's red on one side, crimson on one side, and white on the other. And it's the same concept, but it's, again, when you do something kind for yourself. Or maybe when you notice that you would have said something mean to yourself and you changed changed what you would have said to yourself you you flip your wristband or perhaps you treat yourself to something you wouldn't normally have done you can flip it but the need came out it really wasn't my idea there's a a phd a, a psychologist named chris germer and he and a well-known self-compassion researcher Kristen neff created a program called mindful self-compassion and I met with Chris Germer and his colleague, Michelle Becker, who's here in San Diego. And, and they were really excited about the compassionate bracelets. And they said, you know what, Sarah, we really think we need a self-compassion version. And initially I said, no, people can just use the, the compassionate one for themselves. I don't think we need a separate wristband. And they both said, uh, I don't know, you might want to try it. So I ordered a small batch to really just to appease them and to say, okay, well, I'll try it. And sure enough, that wristband has taken off. And Chris and Kristen, so Kristen Neff and Chris Germer, use the self-compassion wristbands in their classes that they teach around the world. And they encourage all, all of the teachers that teach mindful self-compassion to give these wristbands to their students as a daily reminder to be kind to ourselves. Because Chris Germer, he sees, he sees patients, and he said, I can flip my compassionate wristband all day long because I'm helping others all day. I really need one that reminds me to be compassionate toward myself. 
What a statement right there. Especially somebody and having worked in nonprofits before and working in different agencies that are very boots on the ground and can be very taxing emotionally. The mindfulness just to reflect on yourself and be graceful and even to take a moment for yourself. I can't imagine how important that is in their lives. Yeah, well, it's hard to be compassionate toward others if you if your tank isn't full. So we need to learn how to take care of our own suffering first before we can then turn around and offer compassion to others. Otherwise, we're going to get burnt out, especially people that are that are caregivers. They suffer from empathy fatigue and burnout, and this idea of self-compassion is something that can really help them sustain themselves and continue to offer care. Another thing that's really interesting about compassion, there's actually a lot of scientific research behind the importance and how to implement it into our daily lives. Can you touch on some of that? Yeah, there's research out of a lot of different institutions, including Stanford University, that shows that compassion makes us happier, compassion makes us healthier, compassion even makes us seem more attractive. Uh, yeah, it's true. So there, <laughs> there's a lot of really compelling research that indicates the, the, all of these tremendous benefits of compassion. You've had the ability to see your work in action and not just here locally, but also globally. What do you find when you see people trying to implement compassion? What transformations have you been able to witness? The feedback that I receive often from people who either A, just purchased the wristband and that's their that's how they have changed their mind, their mindsets, or if they've gone through training, compassion training with me, they oftentimes will email me and just say that they have been able to connect with others in a way that they haven't been able to connect with others before. And again, the, the concept of self-compassion is something that really seems to, to hit home with people and, and changes, changes their lives. One thing that's really fascinating about this is the versatility. It's not a, this is one person and only one type of person can benefit from compassion. Mm-hmm. You've talked about caregivers, you've talked about children, you've talked about adults, you've talked about people who struggle with their ability to basically like themselves or respect themselves. Can you describe some of the ways that this is implemented in different areas of society or different organizations? Yeah, and I can say this is one of the most challenging parts about this organization because sometimes I wish we just had a target audience. Like our our target audience is women ages 28 to 34 and they are and we don't have that the entire population of the world seems to be our target audience which is awesome but also really overwhelming and challenging but we've tried to design different programs that can benefit a wide range of people so we do have programs for school children and um, we can go in and speak to kids. We created a lesson plan that anyone can download. It's on our website, compassionate.com, and it's free. So te- we, we've had teachers around the world download that lesson, and they're able to introduce the concepts of compassion and empathy to their school children. So that's one thing that we've done. I like to speak to college students a lot. They seem to, They really seem to get this 
idea and get excited about compassionate. So I can go in and lead lectures at universities. Another thing that we do is compassion cultivation training, which is CCT. It's a course that Stanford University created. It's an eight-week course based, uh, based from Tibetan Buddhism. They actually hired the Dalai Lama's senior translator, Thupten Jinpa, to create this course. So he's the author of the course. And I was in the first group of teachers that went through training. So I'm a certified teacher of CCT. And a couple of my teammates at Compassionate are also certified teachers. So we can lead that eight-week course for groups. And I've led that at one of the most rewarding places was at Balboa Hospital, where I was able to lead that for mostly mental health care providers. So we can lead these eight-week courses. We've done workshops in nonprofits and corporations that help people cultivate compassion. And again, this helps their interaction with each other. Employees will be nicer to each other. And also, again, this idea of self-compassion seems to really help anyone that, that hears about it. So we do offer a wide range of programs. What made the Balboa Hospital experience stand out so much? I think it was just such an honor to be leading people who help others so so pr- profoundly. And I mean, think about it. These folks are are the mental health care providers for the men and women who've been on deployment year after year. And think of the things that those folks probably witnessed or were um, exposed to. And these folks are hearing the stories all day, every day. And so to be able to help them was very rewarding and fulfilling because watching them pay attention to their own suffering and offer themselves self-compassion and then also realize many of them began implementing the exercises that we did in class with their patients. So I know that they were able to then, the ripple effect of compassion just keeps keeps going. So I, it just, it was, again, it was, it was an honor to be in a room with those folks. I can only imagine. Mm-hmm. So I'd like to shift gears just a little bit and talk about what it actually takes to create a nonprofit and what it looked like starting this organization. Because you have this idea, you've Googled it, no one's right. done it. Yeah. But how do you go from that step to then having a global reach? It doesn't sound like an overnight process. No, it wasn't. And as I mentioned, so the, the idea for Compassionate came up in 2008, but I didn't do anything with it. It took three years to have the courage to just make a bumper sticker. And so I started handing out bumper stickers. Then I thought, oh, this could be a brand. We could sell t-shirts. Like life, We could be the next life is good. So I st- started with that and then very quickly realized I wanted this to be a global movement. And a f- very good friend of mine, Sherry Wilkins, was helping me a lot. And she said, if you want something to be a movement, you need to sell something cheaper than a $30 organic cotton t-shirt. 
you should sell a wristband or something like that. And I automatically was like, no, those are lame. I've never worn a Livestrong band or anything like it. Uh, and then that evening is when I thought about, huh, I wonder if I could find a reversible wristband that could create action. So that's that's when it, when once we had the wristband and we realized that these wristbands were changing people's lives, right away um, we had our proof of concept. So it kind of happened accidentally. Really, I didn't come in thinking like, I want to start a global movement and this is what I'm going to do. I really for, at first thought, huh, that's a clever phrase. I'm going to make some bumper stickers. And it just very, the more I learned about compassion, the more excited I was to try to just get the message out to as many people as I could. So what's the best way to do that? And being open to others' ideas. So I think to answer your question, what what I have found to be the most helpful in getting this project from an idea to what it is today is being open to help from others. So creating a team of people who are excited about this and who none of this would have happened if I had tried to do it on my own. Every single brilliant idea that has happened with Compassionate has been from someone else. So from, hey, let's have a, let's have a bracelet to we have them in, we sell them in pairs so that you wear one and share one. That wasn't my idea. That was my board member, Heather Arnold's idea. So, and then I've had incredible interns who've been spreading this. It's really, I think key is getting a team of people who also are as excited about this this idea that's a huge point because we can really leverage others around us to have a greater impact but how do you find those people (laughs) i think you have to just be so excited about what you're doing that you're you just talk about it i am a natural salesperson and if I meet somebody and I'm excited about whatever, something, I'm going to tell them about it. Oh my gosh, you won't believe this book I'm reading? You have to read it. That's just the way I am. And um, being open to sharing Compassionate. So whenever I had opportunities to speak at San Diego State or uh, other organizations, I, I just jumped on it because knowing that I could share this message with others, others seem to be really inspired about what compassionate can do for the world. So that is one thing I can say. I've been able to create a lot of social capital is what I call it, social capital, um, because the people are what has, people have made compassionate grow. We haven't had, we didn't have this huge ton of money that we've been able to advertise all over the world it's really all been word of mouth what a great term social capital yeah I didn't come up with that someone else thought of that not me but that's we do have social capital that's a stealable concept (laughs) so to push the idea farther not just on a team what role has partnerships played in your ability to kind of expand beyond just your reach oh gosh oh I've had a lot of partnerships with anywhere from a huge organization called the Charter for Compassion is an, a nonprofit organization that is worldwide and it's trying to, it's a platform that allows people all over the world who are excited about compassion to come together and help each other. So, partnerships with the Charter for Compassion, 
to uh, there's another compassion movement in Botswana called the Botho movement and we've partnered with them they actually sell compassionate wristbands in Botswana and they brought me and a colleague there to lead training compassion trainings for various audiences in Botswana last November to local partnerships as well many of the nonprofits here we work together to help each other. So my friend Heather is the executive director of Girls Think Tank. I have Jonathan at One to One Movement, my friend Kim at the One Love Movement. We all just want to help each other because we're all trying to make the world a better place. So I seek out partnerships wherever I can. Um, I, I think sometimes nonprofits can be afraid that, oh no, if I, I don't want to help that nonprofit because what if people are going to donate to them instead of me. And I think that's not the right idea. I think we all can, there's enough money out there for us all to be successful. So if we can help each other, we're just going to be able to help the world more. That's a really good idea that sometimes creating a partnership with a nonprofit can actually be challenging. And part of it might be, I know having worked in the nonprofit, a lot of times people come in and they're all full of zeal and I'm going to do all these things and then you never hear from them again. Were there other challenges that you found in creating these partnerships? I haven't, I really haven't had any challenges with the partnerships. I think that we've all been able to collaborate pretty well together. The only challenge is that we're just all really busy and trying to find a way to get everybody together to, we, I started a little group and there are four of us that meet every other, we try to try to meet every other week. And it's almost like a support group for nonprofit leaders because we all sort of face the same challenges, but we also are able to help each other. Um, so I think that's really the main thing. I haven't found any other major challenges with it. Well, busyness is not just something to the nonprofit <laughs> sector. Yeah, good point. <laughs> but no, it's yeah. very true. And especially when you find people who are really doing things and they're really movers and shakers, time is the biggest asset. Yeah. Yeah. Let's circle back to something you mentioned earlier. Okay. That you didn't have just tons of money to start this movement. Mm -hmm. So how did you, or how were you able to bootstrap it and definitely go on a skinny budget, the mantra of nonprofits, to be able to kind of get the ball rolling? I think I was working for quite some time as I was getting compassionate going. So that that is one thing. Um, and, and then I actually got fired because I was in sales and my numbers went down when compassionate started taking off because I wasn't, I didn't really care about selling medical equipment. I just wanted to sell compassion. So uh, I actually did get fired, which is crazy. But um, that is one thing I, I was able to, create a good bit of savings so that I could pursue compassionate. And then I changed my lifestyle quite a bit. I used to be in pharmaceutical sales and makes, I made six figures for a while and, uh, but I wasn't happy and wasn't fulfilled or rewarded at all. And so I, it's hard to leave that job because you get a free car and free gas and you work from home and you can, get your calls done by noon and have the afternoon to hang out. And, um, it's tough. It's tough to leave that, but I wasn't happy. So I decided I'll buy a cheap car and I'll move to my family's home so I don't have to pay rent, 
which is great. And um, I just live on a very small budget now. So that's that's what I've done to sacrifice to get Compassionate going. And then we just didn't, you know, like any start, lean startup style, when you're going to, when we ordered bracelets for the first time, we ordered a thousand of them. And so we had 500 pairs. So it's not like I was like, this idea is going to work. I'm going to order a million bracelets. You start small and you see, does anybody want this? Is this even going to work? I didn't have a web page starting out. You don't really need a web page. You can set up a Facebook page for free. I think you can even sell products on Facebook. You can. Um, so you can start like that and just see, does, does this concept resonate are people willing to spend money on what it is that you're providing them and starting small is the best way to do it such a strong business sense that you brought to this nonprofit minimum viable product lean startup you know leveraging free resources it's so great to see that built into a nonprofit having worked in some nonprofits sometimes it's there and sometimes it's not and sometimes that's the biggest crux of the nonprofit is you have all the desire to change the world, but there's got to be a business sense there. And so kind of on this idea of business, I'm curious what your ideas are on the role of business and kind of this for-profit model in creating social change or even the relationship between for-profit and nonprofit. It's funny, when I started Compassionate, I... I didn't want it to be a nonprofit, and I said, "This is this can be a for-profit company, and we're a for-profit company doing good things. We'll uh, set ourselves up as a benefit corporation." And I just was concerned about the restrictions that we may have by being a nonprofit. But right away, people were questioning us because we were selling compassionate wristbands as a for-profit. So it's funny that they they wouldn't they they felt. I don't, I don't know why. I think somebody was saying, well, what are they going to do with that money? And, and I wanted to say, well, how much money did you spend on that pair of jeans? And where does that money go? And do you care? Why can't somebody, why can't a company make money if it's quote unquote selling something that's good for the world? So I, I really didn't want it to be a nonprofit, but there was enough pushback. And then there were some opportunities that I thought we could go after as a nonprofit, uh, which made us decide to go the nonprofit route. But because I had, I didn't come into it saying I want to set up a nonprofit. I really don't look at, at it the same way. I think a lot of nonprofit leaders look at their businesses, which I don't know if this is a good thing or not. But I, I'm not into fundraisers. We've never really had a big fundraiser before. I don't want to just ask people for their money. I don't ask for donations. Um, we really want to sell products and services that then can allow us to do our programs and provide compassion to people who maybe wouldn't have access to, to it. So it's a different way of looking at a nonprofit. And I'm excited about, about what this, about the potential for it. Because a lot of nonprofits, so much time and energy is spent on trying to raise money, whether it's through specific donors or a big fundraising event or whatever. And, and that is not something I'm excited about doing. So I'd much rather sell a product that is actually creating compassionate actions 
and try to get as many of those out there in the world and knowing that that money has been supporting our programs, I think it's it's really exciting. It almost sounds like this business mentality has really give you, given you a competitive edge. I don't know about that. If you see, <laughs> if you see the amount of revenue we're generating, it's not like we're killing it, I and mean, we're doing well and we're growing uh, year after year. But um, it also might be hurting me that I'm not trying to do a big fundraiser or seek out donors. So I'm not sure. I think the good thing is that we have this this revenue stream and we're actually going to hopefully in the next few months start a subscription model. This is our newest idea where people can pay a monthly fee to get resources. So that like the, if you pay $10 a month, for example, we haven't set it all up yet, so I don't know if I should be saying this or not, but uh, if you pay $10 a month, the first month you get your pair of wristbands. And then from that point on, our job is to support you in this choice that you're making to compassion it every day. So how can we do that? We think we'll send you an email each month with content that would maybe have meditations that could be helpful or a video or here's a story about how we've been able to make impact in the world this month. Whatever we can do to support you and to keep you excited about compassionate, that's that's what we're thinking. So that's a that's a revenue stream that would be recurring revenue which we think would be really exciting to have something like that. So again, yeah, I think it's a competitive advantage potentially to have different products that we sell and different services that we sell to generate revenue. I know I'm more excited about that, but it remains to be seen whether or not that will work. Well, I'm excited to see all the innovation (laughs) in this space. Thank you. So let's talk about the nonprofit side. You said that several opportunities presented themselves because of the nonprofit designation. Mm-hmm. What were those? Well, there's something that we're working on right now. It hasn't happened yet, but this this is really what created us excitement around being a nonprofit. And what the hope was is that we could have compassionate work with a couple big universities. And I won't mention them because I don't know if I should, but two rival teams we've been talking to them about having their college athletes we would get custom compassionate wristbands that are both teams colors so instead of it being being black on one side and white on the other let's say for example it would be red on one side and blue on the other and the red would represent one team and the blue would represent another so if depending on what school you go to you would start your day off let's say my team is red i would start the band with the blue side out and then when i compassionate i get to to flip it to my team side so we know that on college campuses especially in these schools the student athletes they're huge they're very popular and everybody wants to be like them people really around the world know these athletes so we thought if we could have them wearing the wristbands and during ESPN's rivalry week have a student athlete from each team go together to schools in the area because the schools are pretty close to one another um, and talk about sportsmanship to I know to schools in the areas then we were really, but we can't work with college athletes as a for-profit company. We need to be a nonprofit organization, according to the NCAA. So that was one thing that it hasn't happened yet, and it's been we've been trying really hard to work with this. And of course, I have this big idea that I would talk to Nike because Nike 
is the one that got Livestrong going. So Nike made those Livestrong bands. So I'm like, oh, this is a perfect partnership between us and Nike. and Or Adidas. Or Adidas, perhaps the competitor. <laughs> Although the schools are Nike schools. So I think Nike would, would want to work with them. Um, but anyway, that was the, I- the idea. And it hasn't happened yet. But It's so funny that you chose maroon and blue. Because I went to Montana State University uh-huh. and their big rival, so Montana State University is blue and gold, their rival, University of Montana, is maroon and white. Oh, no and way! <laughs> it is. And it's a huge family rivalry in my uh-huh. husband's family because his sisters went to University of Montana. So it's just so funny he chose those colors. Also because in my role in AmeriCorps in college, we leveraged those rivalries to do a food donation. And... Each school had a citywide competition where to see who could raise the most food and you build it all up to the game and you get a lot of press between the big game and there's just it's a huge rivalry. Mm-hmm. And what was really interesting is the year that I ran it, Bozeman, Montana is about fifty thousand people, right? You know, or Missoula, where University of Montana is, is about seventy to eighty. So a much bigger community. And Bozeman, Montana just knocked it out of the ballpark. <laughs> they raised about 78,000 pounds worth of food. Wow. Where Missoula, and Missoula, credit to them, it was still very substantial, raised about 30,000. And to see those communities come together and support a rivalry, which historically can be kind of a grueling rivalry, you know, um, just rivalries in general, they're not always the best applications of celebrating those rivalries. But to see communities come together and really go after the rivalry through good. Because yeah. you're looking collectively 100,000 pounds of food raised. It's amazing. I mean, the, the food banks had to purchase extra storage. Wow. And especially going into the holiday season. Oh, that's cool. So I'm obsessed with this idea <laughs> that you just laid down because I've seen it work. Yeah. And just the momentum that you can get around it and different things like that. Um, I've also seen blood drives around rivalries and... Yeah, and think about how many, again, student-athletes, if you have kids that look up to these guys, men and women, and I th- the message of compassion, it's really about being strategic and smart. How can we reach the most people? Yes, I could go into all the kindergarten classrooms in San Diego, and that's going to do something, but is that going to help us on a larger scale spread the message of compassion and really change the way people interact with others in the, in the world. We want to be strategic. I've, I've had conversations with the Padres. I would, I think it'd be exciting for them to have compassionate wristbands as a game giveaway. So have it sponsored by a company, I don't know, one of their big sponsors. And instead of giving away a towel or whatever, give away something that's going to do good in the community. And it could be Padres colors. So there, there are a lot of different, uh, there's a lot of potential. Let's put it that way. I think you need to really get in touch with the NFL. They could. Uh, yeah, you're right. I've thought about it. I have thought about it. They could use some uh, positive PR in the compassionate space. <laughs> you're right. But it's so true. Also, this idea of, there's been this question that's posed before, is when you're kind of a role model in society or just a public figure, what responsibility do you have to be a positive role model? And so I love that you're kind of approaching these colleges and saying, well, who are the role models and how can we leverage their stance, which it's not something they're necessarily awarded through doing good, but they've been given this title 
of public figure and to leverage that and actually create meaningful change. And I just love the idea of sportsmanship. Mm-hmm. That's something we need of so much more right now. Yeah. And Insert NFL. Yeah. And it's the same thing. I think you have people that can say, hey, we're rivals on the court, but we can be friends. We're people. We're, we're going to be kind to each other outside of that. And yes, I went to this school and you went to that school and supposedly we hate each other, but you know what? We don't, we don't really hate each other. So I think it's just a lesson that college athletes could communicate to so many people and we'll see if that ever pans out. But that is really what got us uh, moving on getting the nonprofit designation. Well, I'm excited and hopefully that comes through and <laughs> yeah. then the colleges, once they graduate, they're going to take it out into the real world and the global movement continues. Yes. Today's rapid fire is brought to you by backcountry.com. Headed out on an adventure? Make sure you have the best gear ready to go. Check out positiveimpactpodcast.com slash backcountry for all of our favorite gear recommendations and the lowdown on their responsible brands. Life is a balance of passion and adventure and work. Can you tell us about a recent adventure or excursion that you've gone on? Yes, I could, but I think I'm more excited to tell you about an excursion I'm about to go on because I just bought a plane ticket a few days ago to India. No way! Yeah, I'm really, really, really excited and also scared. But I go on a trip every other Thanksgiving when I don't have my daughter. Um, I'm divorced and I have shared custody with her dad. So I try to go somewhere interesting every other year. And I decided to go to India because plane tickets were only $650 out of Over Thanksgiving? Round trip, yeah. Yeah, so I'm going to India in a couple months and I'm really excited. That's awesome. Yeah. Do you have anything planned out that you can maybe share or details on the horizon? I don't really know yet because I just bought the plane ticket, but I think I'm, I want to try to go see the Dalai Lama in Dharamsala. So he's up in the Himalayas and I want to, he's, as you may or may not know, he's the guy when it comes to compassion and peace. That's his message that he's been spreading around the world for his whole life. And I really admire him and would love to to meet him if possible or at least be in his presence. So, Well, I can't wait to hear back about that trip. <laughs> Thank you. So you do travel quite a bit. Mm-hmm. What has been one of the most memorable or interesting trips that you'd like to share? Probably my trip to Botswana and South Africa last November was, uh, was unforgettable. Because A, I was able to provide service to others, and there's nothing like it. I led, along with my colleague Susan Kinnear, we led compassion trainings for nurses and social workers through their Ministry of Health in Botswana, and through the Ministry of Education, we led compassion trainings for teachers, police officers, orphanage house mothers, and others. So we were able to provide compassion training to hundreds of people in Botswana. And it's a small country, so we really think we were able to make a big impact. And while we were there, we did a safari for a couple days. So I was able to see just magnificent animals in their natural habitat. And that was an incredible life experience for me. Wonderful. Yeah. So many social entrepreneurs find solace and tranquility in the outdoors. 
How has this factored into your role with Compassionate? I live at the beach, so I'm pretty lucky that it's easy for me to to find peace. The ocean really provides me peace, so I can walk out and either go surfing, which I don't do nearly enough, or just walk my dog out at the beach and hearing the waves and watching them crash and seeing dolphins. I see dolphins often out there. Um, I feel very connected to nature when I'm at the beach. So yeah, it really helps me center and being, being in nature can remind us of this big, beautiful world that we're a part of and helps keep things in perspective for me. Can you describe a time where you were able to have boots on the ground and actually see your work in action and see the impact? I think the best example is, is the trip to Africa when I was able to lead trainings for people who had never really... A, they'd never heard of self-compassion or thought of that. They've never, we do a lot of meditation in our trainings. They'd never meditated before. So the kind of epiphanies that people were having about themselves, and I wish that I had some, could remember some specific feedback that we got, but it was really moving to see the transformation that was taking place within people within just two days. So I think that was probably probably the most incredible experience but then I also you know when I'm leading trainings in schools I'll hear back from teachers the next day that say the kids are using the words compassion and empathy and they can't wait to flip their bracelets they love it so gosh I'm just really lucky that what I I hear great feedback often from the kind of work that we're doing fantastic and what a meaningful success what book do you re- recommend to either other socially conscious entrepreneurs or people looking to kind of get going or who want to create change? One book that I loved is called The Diamond Cutter by Michael Roach. And Geshe Michael Roach, he is a Tibetan Buddhist monk who also went to, uh, I think it was Harvard Business School. So a real brilliant guy. And he decided to, as an experiment, go undercover as a businessman and so disrobe and wear a business suit every day and get into the diamond industry and apply Tibetan Buddhist principles to the business world to see what would happen. So he started his own company and he got into the diamond business, the diamond, I guess, business. And the story that he shares about how they started with nothing and grew to this multi-million dollar company in a very short amount of time because of the generosity and um, compassion and all of these really incredible principles that you would think successful business people aren't like that. But he talks about how you can apply these principles into the business world and it was really inspiring for me to to read that book. I I first got it, the audio book, and then I actually bought the physical book. And I need to revisit it, but I would recommend it. It's called The Diamond Cutter. So compelling. What advice do you have for recent grads who are looking for meaningful careers? I think one of the best things that we can do is network. So if there's something that you know that you're passionate about, don't be afraid to call someone up or, or 
connect with them on LinkedIn or just find a way to meet with them. Offer to buy them coffee or lunch and sit down and learn from them. So I would, I think networking is one of the best things that anybody can do, whether they're a recent grad or someone that's already in the business world looking to do something else or wanting to make a big change, find out how others did it. Uh, And again, these connections between people, I think are, that's the best thing you can do. What about those who are much farther along than your recent grads that are feeling stuck or that maybe they've missed their opportunity and they can't tackle these issues? What advice do you have there? I think it's the same thing. If they, if you're feeling stuck, I can resonate for sure because I was there and I was fortunate enough that I saw this Ellen episode that helped me think of a clever two-word phrase that changed my life. But I know that that's really lucky. Otherwise, I might still be stuck. So um, I would just say, again, network with people who inspire you and maybe find out what they did to get their organizations going or you know, figure out how they were able to impact the world. And know that just by your interaction with other people, you're able to change the world, right? That's the compassionate wristband. That's what we're all about. So even if you're at a job that maybe you don't think is helping the world, maybe your personal interaction with your colleagues is your big contribution to making the world a better place. So again, this doesn't have to be this huge, grandiose, I don't know, movement. Not everyone is going to do that. I think everybody can just interact with all other people that they meet in a compassionate way. And that is going to have a huge impact on many lives. Wonderful. What role has mentorship played in your life? Mentorship has been huge for me. I had a great mentor. I still have him. And he's he has guided me these past few years and supported me. Um, I, think, I think mentorship is key because... We can learn so much from people who've already been there and done that. And there's no need to reinvent the wheel. So if you can find people who've already who've already been successful, I think it's great to lean on them. And most I find that most successful business people want to help. So I would encourage everyone to if they want a mentor, pick one and and knock on their door not literally but seek them out (laughs) please please don't go hunt them down personally uh you might get arrested but perhaps a linkedin message would suffice much better than creating a whole bunch of uh, police records yeah (laughs) before we get to our final question today i do have one question i've been meaning to ask our entire time together how many compassionate bracelets are out there we have over seventy thousand out in the world and Six continents, 49 countries, and all 50 states. Man, that's great. (laughs) Thank you. And the global reach really drives that home. So my final question for you today is, is there a mantra or a motto that really guides your work with Compassionate? Yes, and I don't know if I'm going to remember it exactly, but it's from Apple's Think Different commercial, and it's... Something about how the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. Love that. 
Well, Sarah, thank you so much for joining me today. I have thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. If people want to learn more, how do they get in touch with you? They can go to our website, which is CompassionIt.com. So not compassionate, but C-O-M-P-A-S-S-I-O-N-I-T.com. Any social media? Oh, of course, of course, of course. Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, you name it, we're on there. Where you get to take a photo of your bracelet and share it. Yes, please do that. And then use the hashtag compassionate. We love to see those pictures from around the world. Well, Sarah, thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Well, Changemakers, I hope you're as blown away as I am by this incredible mission and committed to build compassion into your daily life. From personal experience, I can tell you the effects are monumental. When we connected with Sarah, she had just purchased her ticket to go to India. As you can tell, this week is Thanksgiving and she is currently in India. No updates on the Dalai Lama yet, but Sarah did recently get blessed by an elephant at one of their unique ceremonies at a temple. Absolutely incredible. I can't even imagine what other adventures she's taking. Also, I'd be completely remiss if I didn't give an update on the 2015 results of the Montana State University and University of Montana food drive. While my alma mater lost their long-standing winning streak, the amount of food raised was astronomical. MSU came in at 194,000 pounds combined with $65,000 in donations, totaling 260,000 pounds. This fell just short of the 196,000 pounds and $85,000 in donations, totaling a crazy 281,000 pounds for University of Montana. Now that has to be the best example of a rivalry for good I've ever seen. In honor of Thanksgiving, we'd love to remind you about Giving Tuesday on December 1st, where the entire U.S. comes together to donate to organizations that they believe are going to help change the world. If you're not sure where to give this year, check out positiveimpactpodcast.com giving to see all of the nonprofits that have been featured on our show. As usual, for all of the resources mentioned on today's episode, including some incredible photos from Sarah, head to positiveimpactpodcast.com slash show. Until next time, keep doing your part to make the world a better place. Mm -hmm.